Philip Davis, thank you very much uh, for being on Vesting People. Um, now, you're well known as an MP who loves horse racing and has indeed been a bookmaker themselves before. Um, tell us actually about how you got into bookmaking and racing. Well, it was my family, really. Um, my, when I was growing up, my mum had a, her own betting office in Doncaster, Marilyn Davis Bookmakers. I think she was probably one of the first women to have a licensed bookmaker's pre uh, premises. Um, and so it was a family thing, really. All, all the years I was growing up, it was sort of compulsory to be interested in horse racing. Uh, my granddads, both of them, were very keen on horse racing. My, uh, my dad's dad used to own horses with Jack Berry. Uh, when Jack Berry started training as a struggling national hunt trainer in Doncaster before he became very successful in Lancashire training on the on the on the flat so it, it's a family thing really everyone in the family is interested in horse racing um, because of the betting shop it was pretty much compulsory um, and you know all my family are into horse racing my my, uh, my nephew James works for Timeform now so it's a it's cascaded through the generations mm. Um, what did you learn about Beskin Hunters from your mother specifically? Uh, what characters they are. I mean, if you really want to meet some characters, go into a betting shop. You meet an absolute salt-of-the-earth people in, in, a, in a betting shop. Um, and so, you know, I spent time there probably before I was the, the age of 18, to be perfectly honest, mm. as well. And um, the thing that I remember from working in my mum's shop was just the great characters who, who came in. Who, you know, I can recall them now. And I think, you know, that's something that people don't understand, actually, is that how people in betting shops... They really understand their punters. They they know them really well, you know. And and I think people underappreciate how well people in a betting shop know the punters who come in day in day out. But the thing, you know, I just remember some real characters uh, coming into the into the shop, and um, you know, salt salt of the earth people. Um, and how come you didn't end up um, following in her footsteps and being a bookie for life? It seems like you've been natural at it. I would have loved it. I'm sure I would have loved it. Um, the thing was, my mum didn't really enjoy it as much as I did. Um, it, when my mum started, it was actually my dad's idea, really. And my dad was a teacher and my mum was a civil servant. And um, the idea was that, you know, my mum would set it up and get it going. And as soon as it was established, my dad would quit teaching and become, a, become the bookmaker. And my mum would go back into the civil service and sort of 25 years on my dad was still teaching and my mum was still running the betting shop and I, my mum loved the customers but I'm not sure she, she had the right uh, temperament for being a bookmaker she's quite risk averse really and so you know if there were big liabilities running onto a, a horse you know I don't really think that it was really for her um, and uh, and so she sold that she sold it really before I had a chance to take it on um, would I have taken it on? I don't know. I don't know if I would or not. I, I, but I loved, I loved my time in the betting shop. I loved every minute of it. Um, but the, the fact was, the decision was taken out of my hand. She, she, she sold the shop to, to a, a firm in the Midlands called Mark Jarvis. Um, so from then, uh, you know, you've ended up as an MP now. How did you end up getting into politics? Well, apart from it being compulsory to be interested in horse racing when I was growing up, it was also compulsory to be interested in politics. They were the two things that were, that were insisted upon really in our household. Um, my mum and dad were both involved in the local conservative association in Doncaster, uh, where I was born and brought up. And at the time there weren't many conservatives in Doncaster. 
So as soon as I was old enough to knock on doors and deliver leaflets at elections, my dad had me out knocking on doors and delivering leaflets. And, you know, I used to love election time. We never used to win any, but I used to love elections. Um, and so I was always interested in politics. And it was really Mrs. Thatcher that really sparked my interest in politics. The first thing I can recall is the Falklands War. Uh, and I was 10 years old and I used to rush home from school to put the news on to see what happened in the Falklands War. Um, and through that, I built up a, an admiration for, for Mrs. Thatcher. And of course, the other big thing at the time in my area was the miners' strike. Uh, our betting shop at the time was in a mining village, and the miners' strike was a massive political issue for the country, but particularly in, a, in mining areas where, where I was. And so, you know, you were either on Mrs. Thatcher's side or you're on Arthur Scargill's side, and I was very much on Mrs. Thatcher's side. And so I guess those two events really sparked my own personal interest in it. But... Frankly, I was I was brought up to be interested in politics by my by my parents. And uh, from that early age, um, had you always wanted to end up as an MP, or, or was it something you sort of found by chance? Because you in the Conservative Association, really young, mum and dad into it. Have we got quite a few of our MPs? Did you always think um, a Philip Davis MP is something you want to be in the future? No, not really. I mean, if you speak to people who were at school with me, they will all say, oh, we knew he was going to become an MP. Mm. But really what they mean is I was really interested in politics. That's really what they mean. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't ever envisage that I would become an MP. Um, and, you know, I, I was working for ASDA at the time. Um, and really I got, it, it was in the, in the late 1990s, I got really disillusioned with politicians. Nobody, nobody ever seemed to say anything that I wanted to be said. And so I thought, you know, rather than going down to the pub on a Friday night and complaining about it, I should try and do something about it. And so I applied to get on the approved list of Conservative candidates. And uh, I was very lucky because Archie Norman uh, was, was the chairman of ASDA at the time, and he was, uh, he was, he was the, uh, the MP for Tunbridge Wells. And you had to have an MP to uh, sign your nomination papers to get on the approved list. So Archie was my referee to get on the approved list. So I was very lucky in that regard. And... Um, I didn't actually ever think they'd want me, but I thought that I'd give it my best shot and at least, even if I didn't get anywhere, at least I'd given it a go. You know, I'd tried to make a difference. And I just kept getting through each stage of the process, much to, much to my surprise, really. So, no, I didn't, I didn't um, envisage I'd become an MP, but, uh, it, but certainly if you speak to my school friends, they'd envisaged it for me. Um, now, obviously, growing up, um, you know, working for a bookmaker in the family, um, your interest in betting has go back a long way. Um, can you remember the first bet you had? Gosh, no, I can't remember the first bet I had actually, but I used to go to the races with my granddad from about, regularly, from about the age of 13 onwards. Uh, from about 1985 onwards, he used to go, he was a butcher, my, and my granddad, and, and he'd had a butcher shop, but he'd sold it but he still worked there part-time, twice a week, doing the deliveries and things. And um, so, but the rest of the week, he used to go to the racing in Yorkshire. And he used to have this badge called the Go Racing in Yorkshire badge. It still exists. Yes. Uh, and he used to have that. And he used to go to every meeting in Yorkshire um, where there was, and there's virtually every day there was a meeting. on. So every Saturday during the school holidays, you know, I'd tag along with my granddad and his friend. Uh, who And, and, uh, and so... I can't remember my first bet, but it would have been when I was about 13 at the races and my uh, my granddad would have no doubt put the bet on for me. 
Um, what um, are some of your, you know, that was a great era um, in racing. That's the time you were growing up and you mentioned, of course, Jack Berry and Always Progress. Do you have any heroes in racing from that period? My favourite horse from that, the sort of mid-80s, was Dancing Brave. I absolutely love Dancing Brave. Um, how, how he didn't win the derby, I will never know. I don't think anybody will ever know, actually. Greville Starkey might know, but no one else will, <laughs> will know. Uh, but yeah, Dancing Brave was a real, a real hero of mine um, in, the, in the 1980s. And in the late 80s, horses like um, Nashwan, and, and in the in 1990s of the salsa bill they were they were they were horses on the flat that i really really loved and over jumps i was a massive fan of the dickinsons being from yorkshire i was a big fan of the of the dickinsons and you know some of their uh, old-fashioned chasers silver buck and wayward lad and right hand man absolutely fantastic um i used to I used to love going to weatherby particularly when i was a kid that was my favorite race course um and basically the dickinsons Arthur Stevenson and uh, Mick and Peter Easterby used to farm all the races at Weatherby. I mean, they used to virtually train every winner there. Um, so yeah, they were some real, you know, they were some of my, my favorite horses at the time. And have you had the pleasure of meeting any of um, those Yorkshire legends, um, the Easterbys and the like? Yeah, actually, um, when, uh, when I first got into racehorse ownership, with some colleagues at Asda and my dad, um, we actually had a, a, a horse trained by Mick Easterby, um, and actually we've had lots of horses trained by by Mick and, and point to pointers with David beforehand. Um, and I mean, you know, Mick is an absolute legend. He's an absolute legend. He's he's brilliant. He's you know one of the shrewdest people you can meet. But you know, the entertainment value is just absolutely terrific. So yeah, meeting. Uh, meeting Mick and having horses with Mick has, has been uh, absolutely fantastic because he is one of the all-time greats in the training ranks, in my opinion. Um, when you first went into Parliament, um, did you find that many of your peers um, were into racing? Or was it a subject that was talked about in Westminster? Did you find it easy to meet other racing fans? No, not really. That's, that has actually surprised me. It's amazing how few racing fans there are in in parliament actually there's a few and obviously there's mps who have race courses or you know training centers or things in their constituency but there aren't actually that many mps who are particularly interested in in horse racing or betting or understand betting or understand horse racing um which is one of the problems that the that the gambling industry has and the horse racing industry have that actually they don't have that many people in parliament who actually care about it that much. Um, and do you feel that the sports, you know, the sport has, some people say, a perception problem um, amongst the wider public uh, when it comes to some areas, and we're gonna get into that a bit later. Is there anything that you think racing uh, can do um, to improve its standing with MPs? Because there are some who might be more opposed to it. And in the same way, there are some MPs who have become vocally more anti-gambling. Um, and we'll discuss that a bit more later and the forms that takes, but do, what do you think the best way to show off racing um, and it is in Parliament? The best thing to, about for racing is for people to go to the races. I don't know anybody, frankly, who goes to a day at the races who doesn't enjoy it. 
Um, and the, you know that's what the racing industry has to do more of in terms of getting support amongst politicians is get as many MPs as possible for a day out at the races in their local area or close to Parliament, wherever it is, because you know it's infectious. You know, horse racing is a fantastic day out, um, fantastic fun. I, I say I don't know anybody who's gone to the, spent a day at the races not enjoyed it, and I think that's the secret to it. You know, unless you're really into it, people aren't necessarily going to watch it on the telly. You know, but the, but if they go. They're going to love it, and I think uh, you know, get as many MPs to the races as possible. And uh, sort of lastly, to end uh, this this section, the interview. Um, one of the things I think that's coming up very much on the uh, horizon is, you know, not just a, a gambling review, but I think also as part of it, some um, restrictions on or more measures to combat. Uh, Problem gambling, harmful gambling, people become addicted. Uh, is there any particular area um, that you think the gambling review should be focusing on, um, considering the amount of issues that are being talked about in the industry at the moment? It's got to find a balance between protecting people who are susceptible to harm, but also allowing people the freedom to pursue their interests and the freedom to spend their own money as they see fit. At the end of the day, you know, people have earned the money, they should be able to spend it as they see fit and it shouldn't be for the government to tell them how much you can spend on X or how much you can spend on Y or how much you can spend on Z. So the government's got a difficult balance to try and to, to sort out those two competing issues. Um, I, I fear it's going to go too far on the restricting everybody in order to help a very small proportion of people who have an addiction and I hope it doesn't go down that route. What we should do is say to people who haven't got a problem, you know, you crack on and spend your money as you see fit. Let's focus our efforts on the very small proportion of people who have, a, have an addiction to try and stop them getting there, to try and help them when they do get there, to support their families, because obviously it's terrible for the families as well when somebody has an addiction. But let's focus our efforts on the people who have a problem rather than just pursue measures which affect everybody in order to try and hit a few people who have a, a problem. So um, I hope the government will, will see its way to find that balance. I fear it may not, um, but it's really, really important that we, you know, I don't believe in the nanny state. I don't, I'm a libertarian. You know, that's my political philosophy. I believe people should be free to pursue whatever lawful activity they, they want. And I just hope that the government don't throw the baby out with the bathwater um, and they make sure that we look after people who need protecting but let everyone else crack on and enjoy themselves and spend their own money as they see fit. Thank you very much um, for this part of the Better People interview, Philip Davis. Thank you. And we're back with Philip Davis. Now, many of the people watching this, in fact, nearly all of them, um, are going to have one eye or two on the upcoming gambling review, um, which is a vital moment not only for the industry but also for the sport of racing, which is very close to linked with it. Um, I first want to start out by talking a bit, or asking you a bit, I should say, about the Gambling Commission. Um, how do you think, as a body, they're performing at the moment? I'm not a great fan of the Gambling Commission, to be perfectly honest. I think. Um my view is that it seems that the qualification to work in a senior role at the Gambling Commission 
is to know absolutely nothing about gambling, to be perfectly honest. And um, some of the recent appointments have just reinforced that a opinion that I've got about the gambling commission. So I'm not a big fan. I don't really think that people on there really understand gamblers or gambling or betting, and and uh, I think that's a shame, really. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 not their greatest fan. Would you create an ombudsman for the industry? Yeah, I think I probably would. Um, I mean, there is IBAS at the moment, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure how effective IBAS are or how trusted they are with punters. You know, people have different opinions about that. Um, so I think there is a there is an argument for for having a, an ombudsman who is set up officially to deal with disputes between punters and and, and the industry. Um, now, the Gowan Review um, in itself, you know. Do you, a lot of people worry um, that the gambling review is focusing too much on one single subject, namely responsible gambling and affordability, and that um, you know, the weakness of the gambling commission, uh, data and tracking, customer management restrictions, um, people losing money without protection if a bookmaker goes bust, etc. Um, a lot of people feel those concerns being sidelined. Do you think this review has been allowed to become about one subject? Um, and do you think that anybody in particular might be benefiting from that? Well, I think there's a very strong anti-gambling lobby which focuses on those issues and that sets the political agenda. And, the, and that's the agenda that the government has to fi feel it, it needs to respond to. So I think there's a certain inevitability that it's going gonna, it's gonna to focus on that because that's where all the media activity is that's where all the lobbying activity is and, and so that's just the the way of the world i think though that the the gambling review should look at wider matters to be perfectly honest and, and look i'm you know people will say generally i support i'm supportive of the gambling industry i'm uh, I, I would say in many respects i'm not um i'm supportive of people having the freedom to gamble that's what i'm supporter of um i think the gambling industry historically has been pretty slow to deal with some of the concerns that people have have had. I think they're doing a lot better now under the guise of the BGC. Um, I think they, they've moved things on a lot and I think lots of people in the industry uh, are now much more switched on too. So I think they've, they've made big steps forward. But I think there are issues that the gambling industry need to address. You know, restricting people's bets is, a, for me, is a real big issue. And I hope the government will look at, at, at that, to be perfectly honest. I mean, look, um, I, you know, actually, many many of my colleagues who don't understand betting or gambling, they can't believe that that bookmakers restrict people's stakes. They they think that that net, they can't imagine that happens. But obviously, you know, lots of people who are regular punters, that's an everyday experience for them. And I think the, the gambling industry's got in a danger of actually ruining itself. Well, the the, the thing that what, what if you're if you're in the gambling industry, what you're trying to sell to people. You're trying to sell to people the possibility, yes, you're going to make an event that you're watching more interesting. That's a key part of it. But surely you're selling a dream that you could possibly win, that you can, that you can win some money from doing this. You can beat the bookmakers. Well, that dream is pretty much dead for, for many people because you know if you show the first sign that you might be winning a few quid here and there, you're restricted to minuscule stakes. Well, what kind of a dream is that to sell to people? You know, you can bet with us, but only if you lose. If you if you if you win, we don't we're not interested in you. And that's what so much of the gambling industry is doing 
to, to punters at the moment. And it's, you know, it's going to destroy itself if it carries on down that route and it's sort of all shareholder focused activity. And I think, you know, the government needs to look at these things. It's got to be a quid pro quo. You know, it's, the, the, the betting industry can't say on one hand, actually, it's terrible for the government to intervene to restrict the amount that people can stake on their betting, whilst at exactly the same time, the bookmaking industry are restricting the stakes of other people on their betting. You can't have it both. Either you don't believe in, in people being restricted and people should be free to bet what they want, or you don't. The bookmakers are trying to have it both ways. And, and I think, you know, the government should, should push back at bookmakers on these kinds of, of things and actually say, look, we, we want to make this fair for, for people who have a, a, a gambling addiction or at risk of having a gambling addiction. But also, we want to make it fairer for punters more generally and how they're treated by bookmakers because there is this cartel at the moment that operates these excessive, in my opinion, restrictions on people's betting. Would you bring in some sort of minimum bet limits to the UK? You have to lay to lose so many um, pounds on a sporting event or whatever, or any sort of event. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite attracted by, by that. Uh, I know they do it in Australia. But actually, they've been doing it on the race courses for, for many, many years. You know, race courses have, have had bookmakers have had to put their little sign up uh, to say, you know, we'll lay any horse to lose a certain amount of money. Uh, and so if it's good enough for the race courses, you know, why should it not be good enough for every, everybody else? Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I am rather attracted by that. I, I'd rather it, it didn't need to happen and that bookmakers would actually see that this was an issue themselves. Um, but if they won't and they carry on in the way they, they, they are, then that, that may be the way we have to go. Um, you were speaking about the BGC earlier. Um, do you think that they are representing the industry you know, in the right way and that they're a net good? And I ask this just because there have been some instances of controversy with regards to you know, what some people would say are very forceful approaches from senior people at BGC to criticisms um, which don't paint the industry in a good light. And, and I was wondering what you thought about that, um, holding the position that you do. No, I think the BGC have been a real force for good in the industry. I think that they've really stepped things forward in terms of how important bookmakers take things like responsible gambling and, and, and understand what they, they need to do to look after their customers a lot better. Um, so yeah, you know, Bridget Simmons, the chairman, and Michael Duggar, the chief executive, I think have done a really good job. I think they've united the industry in a way that it probably never has been before. I mean, you know, for years, the gambling industry used to commit mutual suicide by fighting amongst itself and different elements of the industry saying, you know, well, you know, we're really good, they're terrible, you know, attack them, leave us alone. Um, and that went on for years, that kind of, uh, of, of mutual suicide. So. No, I think they've done a really good job. You, you know, it's 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 been it's been a big task for them to to um, to deal with some of the issues, and I, I think they've I think they've done a really good job. Um, regarding um, another part of the betting industry, but um, this is more focusing on punter experiences now. Um, but there are exchange platforms um, plans to use Betfair, Smarkets, and like. Um, do you think they've been a net positive or negative? Um, for the punter in your experience, do you use them? I, d I, d I don't use um, Betfair and, and BetDAC. Uh, I do check the prices on there though, because it's very, you know, I, I, I do follow the market. I have used them in the past. Um, 
uh, and I'm not averse to using them, but I, I tend not to bet with them at, at the moment. I tend to use traditional bookmakers. But have they been? I, I think you know. Yeah, I think they've been a, a net positive. I think they've been very difficult for bookmakers, um, but for punters, uh, yeah, I think the exchanges have been uh, a net positive for punters. I think they've reduced the margins that used to exist on horse racing uh, massively. Um, so that's really been a, a positive thing. A lot of people have this two sides of the coin about you know whether or not be, be people being able to lay their you know lay horses led to more cheating in racing and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I'm sure I'm sure for a while that there probably was more of that when it first it first came out. But I think that the authorities have really got a grip of that now, and actually it probably allowed people to be make it easy to be caught cheating actually i'm sure it, it, it's not it just happened since the start of exchanges so i suspect um it's even had a net benefit in that regard too so yeah i think for punters exchanges have definitely been a positive um and going back uh to something which is i think a big policy issue but um a big argument we're hearing um is about drawing the line between sports betting um, and events-based betting and casino-style um, products that are offered. Um, you know, it might seem a basic question, um, but actually it's going to be a rather key one. For you, is there a line to be drawn between sports betting and casino products? Because there are many people out there who would argue that it should all be lumped into one pot when it comes to gambling and what people are winning and losing, etc. And as such, we got um, under the same umbrella for, say, affordability checks. Yeah, I've got mixed views about this. I mean, I, I can see the distinction between what you might call games of skill, mm. horse racing, and all kinds of sports betting, where yeah. people take a judgment based on what their opinion is, and games of which are just games of chance, you know, um, in roulette or something, where any number can come out of a hat and there's no skill involved. I can see why people might want to make a distinction between those two things and I think there is clearly a distinction between them. So I get that side of it. The, on the other hand though, as a libertarian, look I, I'm not into, you know, I, I don't like casino products. Uh, I was, you know, I'm, I, I never wanted to play on a fixed odds betting terminal in a betting shop. I couldn't see what the attraction was personally. But Look, I, I don't think I came into politics to stop everybody else from doing all the things that I don't happen to like myself. And so I'm rather nervous about me saying, well, actually, look, I think, you know, this is really bad for you doing the, these products, but this is, this is, this is, this is okay. Um, you know, people should be free to spend their own money as they see fit. So I, I'm slightly, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly conflicted because I can see that there is a distinction, but would I want to in effect treat somebody who prefers playing roulette or casino products or whatever would i want to treat them as a second class punter you know I, there's something about that i don't really i don't really i don't really like so um unusually for me i might sit on the fence on that one william and uh just last but not least um with the affordability checks um, a lot of people in racing have expressed a great fear that, you know, for example, checks on anything of 100 a month or even on 500 a month, which I think is where Flutter has put their line down, would be sort of ruinous for the industry. 
Is there a number you think, do you, do you have a rough number in your head that you think checks should be brought in at? Um, let's say for racing on an account over a month. I don't think it's about, I mean, it depends what, what, we're, what we're looking at. Are we looking at how much people deposit? Are we looking at how much people lose? Um, how, are we looking at how much people stake? Because obviously there's a massive mm. difference between all of those all of those things. And I think people have got to be very, very careful. I, I think that what pe the one thing I learned when I was in my be our, our betting shop was that even though we knew our customers really well, I had no idea what resources they had behind them. Mm -hmm. I had no idea whether people were millionaires or whether they had nothing. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that, and I, and I wouldn't want to intrude on that. That's that's for me. That's private, and so people have to decide for themselves. We've got to have individual responsibility. People have got to decide for themselves how much they're comfortable betting and losing. And bookmakers should be able to assist them to make sure that they stick to any of those limits that they've imposed on themselves. But I don't think bookmakers or anybody or governments can say to somebody, you know, you should only be able to lose this amount of money on 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 betting, because where where do we draw the line on that? We're going to start saying, well, you, you we're going to say that you can only spend this amount of money on shoes every every month, because and above that, that's excessive, and you don't really need them. I mean, I, I just don't like that level of state interference. So I, I prefer individual responsibility. People setting their own limits whether it's time limits or state limits, deposit limits, whatever. And the bookmaker should be there to make sure that people can stick to them and, and don't go off the rails. But I, I, I certainly don't want to live in a country where the government uh, tells me how much I can spend on a particular leisure activity. Um, that seems to me like a, a, a rather bad sledgehammer to crack a, to crack a nut. And it doesn't actually target people who have got a problem. Let's, let's focus all of our efforts on people who've got a problem. Just, I must have one last follow-up to it, which is just that the idea, let's say, removing a state limit or removing a deposit limit, the idea of a loss limit surely can, in that net, very effectively target people who've got a problem. It can, you can make the intervention there and then, and, you know, you wouldn't have, uh, some of the stories we've seen of people losing, say, five, six figures. If, for example, there was a loss limit of, say, 500 or 1,000 pounds a month. Some people will, will have that um, argument in response. What do you say to them? Well, look, the thing is, it depends how, how strictly it's going to be enforced, for, for one thing. You know, there are lots of punters, mm. successful punters, who lose over 1,000 pounds in a month or even two or 5,000 pounds in a month. They're, they're, they're winning overall, but they have, you know, if you, I, I've seen lots of the betting people series, you, you, all of them, some of the most successful punters uh, that, that you've spoken to, that Simon's spoken to about how they've gone through, how do you deal with a, a bad patch? Mm. Well, I mean, how does that work? If you're a successful punter, you're not, you don't have a problem. You're actually a, a net winner over the year, but you're going through a, a, rough, a rough patch. So how, it depends how these rules are going to be applied because if you were just to have a oh well you've lost over a thousand pounds this month you can't have another bet that would to me would be ridiculous um and so where do you set the where would you set a a, a limit you know hmm. for some people losing a thousand pounds a month would be catastrophic for them so that it's very difficult to, to to set a figure and say that should apply to everybody because everybody's circumstances are so so very different uh, one last sort of uh 
devil's advocate question to throw there, but um, there are some situations where um, you might hit a loss, a loss limit and then the operator will ask you for proof of funds, you know, source of income, incomings, outgoings, and then you are allowed to crack on if you prove that's within your range. In principle, is that something you're comfortable with? Well, I think this goes to show how difficult it is to set any kind of rule and limit because it's, 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 too, it's too difficult a, a measure to apply to everybody. Um, you know, I, 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 come, I come back to the point of how much can somebody afford to lose? I, I, don't, I don't know. Ultimately, only they know. I mean, if I, was, if, if I gave you my bank statement and, and just say, for example, it showed that I had a disposable income of... A thousand pounds a month, and I then asked a hundred people, "How much can that person afford to lose on betting?" You would get a hundred different answers. Some people would say, "Well, they can afford to lose a thousand pounds a month because that's their disposable income." Some people might say, "Well, hold on a minute, they've got to buy food and they've got to buy clothes and whatever, so maybe it's only a hundred pounds a month." How do you make that decision? It's it's an impossible decision. To make it's completely subjective it's not objective at all so i just think they are very very poor measures to be honest bookmakers being forced into them by the regulator but i think often they're quite meaningless and it's just like another hoop to jump through for people to put a bet on and, and often people think well i don't even see the point of this how has this proved anything um you know you can look at what my income is but how do you know what all my outgoings are it's it's it, 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 I, I think it's very dangerous to go down that route because it's, it tends to be a meaningless figure that you come out with at the end of it all. And it's just a, a, a pointless bureaucracy. And all it will do, will either people will say, well, do you know what? I can't be bothered with this. I won't bet at all. Can't be bothered. Well, I'll bet with my mates. Because, you know, and there'll be somebody who will take up the slack somewhere in the local pub or in the local betting shop or whatever. Uh, or people will go to the black market. And that just seems to me to be an inevitable consequence. If you make things too onerous, people will find another route to do it. And the government have got to avoid that from happening. Phil Davis, thank you very much. Thank you. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.